Welcome, everyone. Good to see you. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church. It is so good to be here and so good to be your pastor. All of you in Cafe Worship, I'm your pastor too. Uh, love you guys so much. Welcome to you. Open your Bibles, everybody, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 12. Got a full house today. Did, did y'all know I was preaching on sex or is it just a happy, a happy accident that you're here? Uh, did y'all know? Did, okay, so, all right, now you know. First uh, Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. Uh, one day my father-in-law was in a McDonald's restaurant. He was ordering breakfast, and a question arose. He just asked the question. He said, what is, uh, talking to the employee, the teenage employee, uh, what is in an Egg McMuffin? The teenage employee looked straight at him with a straight face, totally honest, and just said, Egg? Muffin? Egg? Muffin? I mean, you know, egg, mick, I guess. I mean, egg, muffin. Uh, some things are very, very easily broken down into their parts. You know that? Some things very easily broken down into parts, and Egg McMuffin perhaps is one of those things. But honestly, there are other things that are not easily broken down into component parts. Human beings are among the things not easily broken down into parts. Now, in Scripture, of course, we are sometimes described as multidimensional creatures. In the Old Testament, for example, we're told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, and strength, that sort of thing. Elsewhere in Scripture, it's heart, mind, soul, and strength. Strength, New Testament, Jesus says it that way. Sometimes in Scripture, Paul talks about us being some sort of tension between uh, flesh and spirit. But, but you recognize in, in the Scriptures, there's never this, this uh, description of us as literally being in, in parts that you could separate, like, like body, mind, and soul. The Scripture defines us as multidimensional, but, but not as being beings that are somehow in parts that can be separated. In other words, uh, we're, we're less like egg McMuffins and more like an egg omelet. You could talk about ingredients in an egg omelet, like, you know, yolks and whites and salt and pepper and milk, perhaps, something like that. But, but the, the idea is, uh, once they're put together, you can't unscramble the eggs. And while we are multidimensional, body, mind, and soul, you don't separate us. You can't separate soul from body, and that's pretty clear from Scripture. We are one uh, unified whole, and this is the way that God has made us. Now, in church, Sunday after Sunday, you would think that we're, we're spirit and body or soul and body. And, and also, if you hang around church very long, you would probably get the idea that we're mostly interested in your soul. We hardly ever talk about bodies. Well, today, we're going to talk about bodies. And Scripture gives us a good word for that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Let's talk about our bodies and what it means to glorify God with our bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Now, Paul is, again, writing a letter to Corinth, the church at Corinth, and they have obviously written him a letter first. So he's responding to things that they have said to him. So, so follow that as we read, starting in verse 12. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. 
And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her. For the scriptures say the two shall become one flesh. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. You must glorify God with your body. You know what that means? That means your body is glorious. Turn to the person next to you and just tell them, your body is glorious. Go ahead. Go ahead. Your body is glorious. All right, all right, come back. Come back to me. Come back to me. Uh, come back to me. Yeah. Uh, uh, your body is glorious. Thank you for saying so. Uh, absolutely. Your, your, your body is glorious. I, we almost take that as a joke because most of us don't think of our bodies in that way. Now, now, granted, when we say that all of our bodies are glorious, I'll just be honest, y'all don't look like the cast of Bachelor in Paradise. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that. Uh, but understand, there's something very, very important about our, our bodies, and our bodies are glorious. They are created to literally glorify God. What I want you to understand is that the way you think about your body has everything to do with what you do with it and how you treat it. And, and the truth is many of us really don't care much for our bodies. Some of us have sort of a love-hate relationship with our body, mostly hate. We despise our bodies. Walked into a house one day where a teenage girl was on a diet, a slim teenage girl I would add, slim teenage girl on a diet, but all over the kitchen she had posted signs that said, don't eat you fat pig. All over the kitchen, on every kitchen cabinet, on the refrigerator, don't eat, you fat pig. Now understand, that's how she talks to herself, and that's how she thinks of her body. And, and there's something incredibly broken about that. Will you agree with that? There's something incredibly broken with the way most of us literally despise our, our bodies. And this scripture makes you rethink perhaps the way you think about your own body. So let's, let's talk about that. First off, first principle, when you're thinking about your body, understand it's not your body. It's not your body. I mean, Paul makes it absolutely clear. Your body belongs to the Lord. He, he purchased it. He created it. Your body belongs to the Lord. And since your body belongs to the Lord, he really cares about your body. This is exactly what Paul said. I'm not sure if most of us ever think like this or ever really consider the fact that God cares for and, and literally loves our bodies. As, as I said, in church so often we sort of separate it as if we can just take care of one another's souls, but we rarely speak about bodies. Every now and then a church will do a weight loss class, but as I say, most of that has more to do with people who just want to look good in a bikini. Want to look good in a bathing suit on vacation. Few of us literally care about our bodies because our bodies don't belong to us. They belong to God. 
And like all of the other good gifts of God, we are stewards of how we manage, how we treat, and how we return our bodies to the Lord who made them and who owns them. Your body is not your body. Now, it goes even beyond that and understand exactly what Paul is saying. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and look at what he says in verse 13. Your body was made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about your body. Verse 14, and God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Now, now that just sounds like a verse that slipped in there, but understand, that's a gospel verse. Paul's talking about our bodies and how they don't belong to us and how the Lord cares about our bodies. But he, he, he connects the dots there between the Lord caring about your body and the gospel. The fact that Jesus is raised from the dead. Now, we know that the gospel saves our souls, but we rarely think about the fact that the gospel also affects our bodies. And this is what verse 14 says. In the same way that God raised Jesus' body from the dead, it was a bodily resurrection. The tomb was empty. Understand? He didn't separate Jesus' soul from his body and just take his soul to heaven and let the body rot in the grave. He, He raises the body. God cares about bodies. And the Christian gospel, the Christian faith, never separates us from our bodies. So the truth of the gospel, the essential truth of the gospel, is it's not just your soul that's redeemed. Your body's been redeemed. And it's not just your soul that goes off to heaven. God's going to raise your body too. Do you understand? In other words, when it comes to the gospel, what Christ has done matters for your body. Therefore, what you do with your body matters to Christ. You follow that? What Christ has done matters to your body. Therefore, what you do with your body matters to Christ. Next principle, don't you realize, verse 15, don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Don't you realize, verse 19, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you realize your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Most of us don't think this way. Most of us never think this way. Now, we do talk about Jesus who lives in our hearts. We don't really know what that means, but, but we talk about he lives in our hearts. But, but that's not exactly what Scripture says. Is there any place where the Bible talks about Jesus living in our hearts? I'm not sure if Scripture talks about that in that way at all. What it says is your body is a temple, your, your, your body, your, your whole body. He owns your body. That means he doesn't just inhabit your heart. He inhabits every blessed appendage. You understand? He inhabits your entire body. There is no atom. There is no cell. There is no organ. There is no part of you that is not also part of Christ. Your body belongs to him and it matters to him. Your body, your whole body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is sort of arguing back and forth with the Christians at the church at Corinth. And it's obvious that he's got some people in the church who, are, who feel very, very free sexually. And if you read the whole Corinthian correspondence, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you begin to understand that though these people really love worship, they love being at church, they love the Lord's Supper, they love practicing the spiritual gifts, they're healing, they're speaking in tongues, they're doing all kinds of that crazy stuff. But at the same time, they just live like crazy people when it comes to sexuality. And obviously they've got some arguments. In verse 12, Paul says, some of you say, I'm allowed to do anything. Now, 
that's an appeal to grace because we know that Jesus forgives all my sins and we know that it's by grace I'm saved and I'm not trying to be a good person to get to heaven, then heck, I can do anything I want. And that's what some of the people at Corinth are saying. I can do anything. I am free to do anything I please. But Paul says, that may be so, but, but not everything is good to do and you certainly don't want to become a slave to something. It goes on. Verse 13. Food was made for the stomach, and stomach was made for food. Now remember, this is an argument they're making regarding their sexual liberty, trying to defend their sexual looseness. And they compare it to food. Food's made for the body, and the body's made for food. In other words, they're saying sexuality is just an appetite. Our body desires to join with other bodies in the same way that our body desires food and water. The body's made for food, and food is made for the body, they say. Yeah, but Paul goes on, he argues back. He says, but th- this is true, although someday God will do away with both the food and the body. And then Paul answers, you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual, sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. Man, the arguments haven't changed much. People still just want to say, hey, if it feels good, do it. People still say, you know, I mean, Lady Gaga says she was just born this way. You understand? So if I'm born this way, then it's more or less God's fault. You know, if, if, I, if, I, if I lean this way, then if I just run this way, that's God's because he made me this way. You understand? I mean, that's sort of the argument. I, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. I, if, if, as long as we're talking about willing and consenting adults, I mean, isn't that just the way our culture speaks? Isn't that the way some of you actually think? I mean, if nobody gets hurt, if everybody's willing, it's just a normal bodily function like eating food. It's an appetite of the body. Paul says you can't say that your body was made for sexual immorality. Now, there is, there is some, some reason to say that the body was made for sex, but not sexual immorality. And understand, they're not the same thing. Uh, absolutely not the same thing. Sex in itself is is not sin. God created sex. Certainly you understand that sex is part of God's good creation. God created Adam and Eve as husband and wife, put them in the garden together. And part of the joy and part of the goodness of creation involves the sexual intimacy between a wife and her husband. God created that and he created it good. I thought somebody would have said amen, but not a single person. (laughs) Y'all ain't talking, y'all ain't making eye contact with me. Nobody's talking to me, man. Nobody's saying amen. I'll say amen. Shoot, sex is good, y'all. Sex is good. It's good. And it belongs in marriage. That's the point. It's a gift given for a wife and her husband. It's a sign. It's a wonderful sign of belonging to one another. It's a sign of belonging only to one another. That's the beauty of it. It's a secret that you share with your spouse and nobody else ever. Understand, if you're not married, you're supposed to live a celibate life. In other words, you don't act out sexually. You don't have sex with anybody when you're single. So that means until you're married, you save yourself for your spouse. I mean, this is just what the Bible teaches. And then after you're married on your wedding night, you have your first sexual experience. It's clumsy. It's weird. It's wild. It's two people who have no idea what they're doing, but they've got a lifetime to teach one another. It's beautiful. It's fun. Y'all, it's playful. It's a... <laughs> I hope this is going better in the cafe. That's all I got to say. 
All the sexy people must be in the cafe, <laughs> apparently. No, I don't, I don't want to be crude. It, it, it is so beautiful and joyful. It's a sign of, of God's own blessing. Understand when the wife and husband share together in, in their own intimacy and in privacy and beauty, God doesn't have to turn his back. God doesn't have to cover his eyes. God created that and God rejoices in that. It is for marriage. It, it belongs between the wife and the husband. We've come so far from that. We've come so far from that and it just breaks my heart. It just breaks my heart. It, 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 it breaks my heart that, that as a pastor doing marriage counseling, about half the time when Christian couples come to get married, they're already living together. Uh, I mean, already. In, in our culture, the whole idea of waiting until marriage is, is just something that, that's almost not even preached or talked about anymore. I want to preach and talk about it because it's beautiful. God's plan is beautiful, and that's why you have to follow God's plan. He's the designer. God created sex, so what makes you think that, that you know more about it than God does? What makes you think that you can improve on it or enjoy it more deeply when you do it your way and, and don't do it God's way? It's a beautiful gift given between a wife and her husband. But, but, but as I said, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And as you know, sin interrupted. Sin came in and ruined creation. And part of what is now ruined is, is God's good gift of sexuality. Part of what's broken now between men and women and, and, and us and God is, is our sexuality. It's, it's, it's just broken. It's, it's, it's deeply broken. I guess what I would say from that is that we're just all sexually disoriented. There's a lot of talk about sexual orientation these days. I'm just saying, I think we're all sexually disoriented. None of us is exactly has it together anymore. That, that whole idea that is shared between a wife and a husband now, even that gets really, really complicated. I know that as the pastor preaches on sex, a lot of times it's the married couples that are squirming. Because this is where you struggle. There are married couples in this church that haven't shared a bed in years. It's not good. It's, it's not good. And you know that. There, there are married couples who squirm because this honestly is just where our brokenness comes to the surface. We're struggling. A lot of us struggling. We're all sexually disoriented, broken, but we never talk about it. Very fine scholar named Deb Hirsch has written a book called Redeeming Sex. I recommend it. It's really good. Uh, Deb Hirsch was asked to come and speak at a little bitty country church. It's a tiny little country church. She was asked to come in and speak about sexual things because the pastor felt this burden that this congregation needed to, to address these issues, but he kind of didn't want to be the one to do it. So he invited an outsider in. So she came in on a Sunday morning and preached in this country church about sexual things. And she did a good job. When she was finished, like most Sunday mornings, they, they closed in prayer. But when they closed in prayer for a minute, kind of nobody moved. It was odd. Nobody moved. And there was a teenage boy who stood up, a young teenage boy who just stood up. They said that he was shaking so badly, people thought he was going to pass out. He, he was really nervous and really struggling with his words, but, but f finally he just said, I am really struggling with pornography. I'm really, really struggling with pornography. 
and he broke down in tears in front of the congregation, I mean, the church family that he loved. He, he said, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to stop. All I know is I really need your help, and I really need your prayers. And then he sat down. And then it was really awkward. It was really awkward. Now nobody moves and nobody says a word. I mean, he's, just, he's, he's begged for help and prayers, and nobody has anything to say to him. Then finally, one of the old church ladies, y'all know about old church ladies? One of the old church ladies on the front row, she was like one of those ladies that has her own cushion, you know, and she's sitting on her cushion, and she had like a hairdo and, and all of that, and she stood up and she turned around and she faced him. And she said, young man, I appreciate your courage. You took a great risk by standing up in front of all of us and telling us the truth about how you struggle. Let me tell you something. 78-year-old woman, my husband's been gone 12 years. I am desperately lonely. And then this older widow woman in church said this. She said, I long to be held by a man. I long to share my bed. But I sleep alone every single night. You must not think that only young people struggle with these things. I need prayers too. And I need the church's help. And that day, grace flowed in that little country church. You have these two individuals across the church and across generations speaking to one another, uh, telling the truth about themselves and telling the truth about their own sexual brokenness and sexual struggle and sexual disorientation. Why is that so rare? Now, we struggle. We all struggle. This might be... This may be the main way in which we're most alike, but we never talk about it. We never talk about it because in a lot of ways in church, we make sexual sin to be worse than all other kinds of sin. I mean, we do. We always focus in on the sexual sins. And, and honestly, if, if I were to say, you know, I had a pastor buddy. He, he got in some trouble. I had to leave his church. Everybody's going to think, yeah, we know what he was doing. You know, I mean, because in our minds that there's just nothing worse than sexual sin. My question to you is, is that biblical? Does the Bible elevate sexual sins above all other sins? In other words, to struggle sexually, does that make you a worse kind of sinner? Let's go to what Paul says, because this is often where people are. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 again, let's go to verse 18. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy, Holy Spirit? Run from sexual sin, he says, and I agree that's a really, really good idea. Run. Run. See, the problem is sexual temptation is typically just so delicious, you just like to stay as close to it as you can. And that's what you tell yourself, I can handle this. You know, every man addicted to internet pornography tells himself, you know, I, I, can, just, I can just sit here and I can, I, I can just look at one more picture. You know, two days later, you're still sitting there in your underwear, you understand, but, but you're telling yourself, I, I'm in control of this, I can do this. No, Scripture says you run from sexual temptation. 
You know, the woman right now who's this close to cheating on her husband with, with the guy at work, you enjoy his attention, you enjoy his affection, you enjoy the way he compliments you, you enjoy the way he smells, and you are so very close. And the scripture says you run from that. You don't stay close to it. You don't entertain that. You don't enjoy that. You run from that. There's a trap set under your feet. You run from sexual immorality. Paul says that first. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. So Paul does say that sexual sin is unique. It's unique in the way it affects the body. No other sin affects you as bodily as sexual sin does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. All of these things are true. Paul is saying things that are obviously true. Sexual sin is sin that affects your own body. And don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? It goes back to everything else he's saying. In, in the gospel, because of what Jesus has done, the gospel matters to your body. Therefore, what you do in your body, it matters to Jesus. Paul is saying all of these things, but with all of those things said, has he said that sexual sin is worse than other kinds of sin? Is it worse? I'd say no. It's unique. It's different. It affects the body differently. But is it worse? I, I don't think so. I, I don't think you can say that. Now, typically we do say that, and as I said, we'll read those lists of, you know, Paul has a list of all those who never inherit the kingdom of heaven. And in that list, it says homosexuals never inherit the kingdom of heaven. And man, y'all love if I'd preach on that. Let's just lay on that one for a while. Let's talk about the homosexuals. But you know, in that same list, it says liars. I mean, liars don't go to heaven either. But I've heard nobody say, Pastor Tim, I think, I think we've got some liars in this church. Now, they're not out about it. I think they're in the closet, but they're still lying, and I think we need to flush them out. Nobody's ever said that. I think we got liars in the nursery. Yeah, I don't know who's in the nursery today, y'all. I apologize. I apologize. It's time to select new deacons. We go through the list of qualifications, and people zero in on a husband and one wife. We, do, we don't want any divorced people to be deacons, people say. But have y'all ever read that whole list? It also says that a deacon can't love money. Have you ever in your life been in a church where some deacon got thrown out for loving money? Have you ever? Have you ever been in a church where sin was just sin and we didn't make other people's sins worse than our own sins? Remember the woman that Jesus caught in adultery? I mean, that was his moment right there, understanding. And he is our example. He's the one we follow. And remember how everybody was lined up to stone her? Because there's nothing more delicious than ganging up on some sexual sinner. I mean, you know, it, it makes you feel so righteous. It makes you feel so pure. And, and besides, if everybody's paying attention to somebody else's sexual sin, they'll never notice yours. It's, it's amazing how we love to shift that spotlight to somebody else. So they're lined up ready to throw stones. And they bring Jesus into the whole thing. It's a trap for him, of course, but... Remember what Jesus said? First, he said, let, let the one without sin cast the first stone. Everybody dropped the rocks and kind of backed off, you understand? Is there anybody that's not broken in this way? Is there anybody not guilty in this way? Then what did Jesus say to her? 
the sinner, that the sexual sinner, the sleazy woman, the woman that everybody's ashamed of, the, the woman, you know, whose mama won't even talk to her, that woman, that, that woman who's already slept with everybody else's husband and everybody hates her. She goes to the well in the middle of the day because all the, all the women in town hate her guts. You know, she is that woman. What did Jesus say to that woman? I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. In other words, sexual sin, it's, a, it's sin. I'm not saying it's not. It, it's sin. But is it unforgivable? No. No. Is it unspeakable? No. The things that we feel like we can't talk about, those are the things we feel like we can't control, we can't manage. In some ways, these are the kind of things we need each other for. It's why we have fire teams for our men. It's a place where men can come together as men and, and, and talk about these things. Be honest about your struggles. We need each other. We've got teenagers in this church struggling sexually, y'all. And, and this is a church that never talks about these things. And some of you would prefer that I never do. If we never talk about these things, then the only messages our kids receive are the world's messages, and the world will destroy our kids. Okay. Married couples in this church struggling sexually, but nobody talks about it. And everybody else in this church looks so sexually together. I mean, you know, we all manage to make it look so good. And maybe one of the ways we're most alike in, in this kind of brokenness. And, and you never know it because we never talk about it. So Jesus tells us exactly what his intention is for our bodies, for our lives. Don't you realize that your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, who lives in you, was given to you by God. You don't belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, so you must glorify God. You must honor God with your body. So how do you honor God with your body? Simply by doing the things in your body that would please God. And not using your body for things that are not pleasing to God. It's that, that, that simple. So when the scripture says you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. Do you understand what that means? It means you also have to learn to love him with your body. If you're going to give him your entire self, you have to surrender your body as well. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, uh, sex was your idea, God, oh creator. This is the way you made us, and this is the way you made husbands and wives for marriage and for each other. God, the stain of sin has affected everything, and it's especially affected our sexual lives, Lord. Some of us are so uh, driven by temptation and, and so obsessed, Lord, with sexual thoughts, Lord, even in church, even when we pray, Lord, we can't turn it off. 
Lord, we have young men in this church who discovered internet pornography about the same time they discovered Barney the dinosaur, Lord, and, and they don't know how to talk to their parents about it, and, and they don't know how to turn it off, and, and their minds are being twisted and warped by a, a very perverted idea of what sexuality is, Lord, and the church is silent. Lord, those who struggle sexually in, in, in the body of Christ often feel like they're the only ones, Lord, and nobody is the only one. It's not just young people. It's not just single people. It's not just married people. It's not just people that everybody knows are loose, Lord. It's, it's all of us. We all sin. We all struggle. So, Jesus, help us. Help us to rediscover grace. Help us to rediscover forgiveness. Help us to know that there is no sin so nasty that the blood of Jesus can't yet wash us clean. Help us to know, Lord, that though sometimes we feel completely mastered by our habits, Lord, that there is still power in the name of Jesus to help us to live a different kind of life. Help us to know, Lord Jesus, that you care about our bodies and our minds and our souls and that you have saved us as entire beings. So, Lord, help us to honor you and glorify you, soul, mind, and body. We pray these things in Jesus' name.